after 10. By the time some of us left last night, we just stood around and uh, shot the breeze and chit-chatted, and it was absolutely a wonderful time. It, it, it's always a thrill to visit with God's people, especially those we don't get to see as often as we might like. So, so thank you for the warm reception. Thank you for the encouraging words. And thank you for being back here tonight, having braved the snow, having braved the ice, and coming to hear God's Word preached. Now our theme, Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first. Brother William led that song last night. He led it again tonight. <laughs> as a side note, there was a time when he was shorter than I am. And we knew him at that time down in New Orleans. That time didn't last long because he had a growth spurt not long after we got there. But we're thankful that he's here for him, but also for you, good man. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Last night we discussed how there's a focus on that which is not material. There's a focus there on not seeking earthly treasures, but heavenly treasures. There's a focus on not being materialistic, but having a, a higher priority. Let's start with that idea this evening. Our topic is, seek ye first to be spiritual. We'll often hear people talk about spiritual, and we can understand that physical and spiritual are, are opposite ends of the spectrum, but do we really understand exactly how that applies? Some folks will say things like, well, I feel more spiritual when, when I'm on the lake instead of at a worship service, or I feel more spiritual when we dim the lights for the slower songs. I feel more spiritual when, is that what spirituality is? Is it a matter of feeling? Spiritual. Let's ask this question. Oh, I need to turn that on before we ask it. Let's ask this question. When we talk about the idea of spiritual, do we look at this idea the, the way that God does? Short answer is no, typically not, especially not in our society. A study done in 2014, and by the way, you can tell me after we look at this study whether things have gotten better or worse, but a study done in 2014 found that 51.4% of adults in the U.S. were unchurched. That's to say they had not attended any sort of a Christian, and I put that in parentheses, a Christian worship service other than a funeral or a wedding in at least six months. Those were the ones considered unchurched. <laughs> That's a pretty wide margin. 51.4% hadn't attended a worship service of any kind in six months. Now, it's interesting that of that 51.4% of U.S. adults, 62% of those churchless people identify as Christians. 34% call themselves deeply spiritual. They've not darkened the doors of a church building. They've not gathered with any group of uh, people to worship, even in a denominated way, yet they call themselves deeply spiritual. Only one in six, 16%, said that their relationship with God was, was lacking or shallow. So the vast majority of the adults in the U.S. that are unchurched and really have no interaction with uh, with worship at all, consider themselves deeply spiritual. Could it be that we don't know what that word means? 1 Peter 4.11, Peter would say, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him minister as of the ability that God gives. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, if we're going to speak, let's use 
God's terms. Let's use God's definitions. It's interesting. So often in pulpits of churches of Christ, what are we more, uh, more likely to hear? We speak where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible's silent? Or if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. It might be time for a wake-up call for us to make sure that we're quoting inspired Scripture more than we're quoting really good folks from about 200 years ago. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Let's let God set the terms and the definitions, including when, it dis when we're discussing the idea of that which is spiritual. Whose definitions are we using? We think about what Scripture has to say pertaining to this idea of spiritual. Is it about feeling? Uh, does being spiritual, is it just about attending worship service? Is that the, the measure? Or is it about having a, a regular prayer life? Spiritual, does that mean a person exhibits kindness? Is that the standard? Is it about the number of years a person's been saved? Is it about the, the number of verses memorized? Uh, maybe it pertains to spiritual gifts. <laughs> That's an interesting thought. Consider, if you will, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, noted to them that they, became, they came behind in no gift, that is, no spiritual gift. He's using the same kind of terms that he used when he wrote to the Romans, and he said, I long to be among you that I might impart unto you some spiritual gift, Romans 1.11. With the Corinthians, he said, you come behind in no spiritual gift. Those gifts that were present among them, those miraculous abilities, are actually enumerated in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be ignorant. They had the gifts among them, but they were ignorant. He lists what those gifts are, verses 8 through 10. But it's fascinating to think about what he will tell these people, 1 Corinthians 3. Keeping in mind, they have miraculous gifts among them, but he says, when I wrote unto you, I cannot write unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. These were people that had spiritual gifts, yet Paul says you're not spiritual. Hold that thought for just a moment, and we'll connect it to another. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 1, he told the brethren in Galatia, If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual restore such a one. Hmm. He didn't say, brethren, just restore the fellow. Ye which are spiritual. He identified a very select group among the brethren. The conclusion to be reached from those words to the Corinthians and those words to the Galatians, not all Christians are spiritual. <gasps> you can't say that. We just did. Paul said it. Not all Christians are spiritual. Should they be? Do they need to be? Should that at least be a goal? Absolutely. But when it comes down to it, not all are. So if we're going to seek to be spiritual, it's not just going to be a matter of thinking that it pertains to feeling. We need to look and see what Scripture has to say about spiritual. If we're going to be spiritual, let's be scripturally spiritual. Otherwise, it's not spiritual at all. Four ideas to investigate. First, being spiritual is going to be a matter, first and foremost, of priority. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, right? 
A priority that, that focuses on the things that are heavenly. When Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans 8, 6, he, he said to be spiritually minded, uh, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. He drew a distinction between carnality and spirituality. Now we'll come back to the context of Romans 8 in just a moment, but for now let's note this. When we talk about spiritual, spirituality and that which is spiritual transcends the physical. When Jesus was talking to that woman beside the well in Samaria, he said, God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, John 8, 24. Spiritual. God is spirit. He's not physical. In fact, God was not in a physical state. He did not come in the flesh until the birth of Christ. But he's spirit. He's always existed. Now connect that with what Paul would tell the Ephesians. Ephesians Three, uh, 1 verse 3 rather, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places are to be found in Christ. Thus, God is spiritual. The, uh, the greatest blessings are spiritual blessings. But note the contrast. <clears throat> when he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9-11, he said... It, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we reap your carnal things? Paul was doing a spiritual work among the brethren in Corinth. He had done a spiritual work when he first taught them the gospel. And for him to reap their carnal things, in other words, for him to be uh, compensated materially for his spiritual work, Paul said that, that's right and proper. So there's a contrast between the carnal and the, the spiritual. And we can understand that distinction. We investigate it even further. We think about the words of Romans 8, picking up at verse 1. Paul is investigating three different laws. He, he's discussing the, the law of Moses, the law of sin and death, and the law of Christ. And he says, There is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, physical, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, when Paul speaks of the Spirit in Romans 8, he's speaking of more than just some vague notion of spirituality. He's speaking of a standard delivered by the Spirit, identified with the Spirit, that follows after the Spirit. He's speaking of the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's made us free from the law of sin and death. By the way, the law of Moses couldn't do that. So, as he moves forward, he says in verse 3, what the law couldn't do and that it was weak through the flesh, the law of Moses could not deliver man from the law of sin and death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life. The law of Christ could. When Paul addressed the Romans and he spoke of the law of Christ as compared to the law of Moses, the, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus as compared to this law of Moses that was physical in its nature, and then the law of sin and death as the result of sin, the wages of sin is death, only the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus brings liberty, brings freedom. Thus, he'll make the point that to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. A sharp distinction drawn between a carnal mindset even in religion. 
those that were still trying to follow after the law of Moses. He'll describe them in Romans 10.3 as going about to establish their own righteousness. Their approach to religion was one of a checklist. They weren't worried about following Christ. They weren't worried about the gospel. They were worried about their own traditions. They were worried about what they'd always heard and been told instead of what God actually wanted. And Paul says that's a physical approach to religion. There is a sharp contrast between the carnal and the spiritual. And yes, it is possible for people to claim to follow God yet turn it into a carnal practice. Ephesians 6, as, is, as he discussed the, the armor of God, he said, we, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual hosts of wickedness is how the American standard has it. Spiritual wickedness in high places. Our fight is not a flesh and blood, punch them in the jaw, bloody their nose fight. It's a spiritual one. So the contrast is given. That which is spiritual transcends the physical. We keep that thought in mind. We could connect it to 2 Corinthians 10 beginning in verse 3 when he said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. When we talk about the spiritual we're talking about that which transcends the physical. And as such something to keep in mind. That means when we talk about spirituality we're not talking about sensuality. When we get to 1 Corinthians 2, Paul's going to draw a distinction between the spiritual and the natural, the sukikos, the sensual man. To be sensual is to base things on feelings and senses. The person that says, I feel more spiritual when the lights are dim. I feel more spiritual based on these physical stimuli that person doesn't know what spiritual is. Fellow, if an individual, uh, folks, if a fellow stands before you and says something along the lines of calling anyone that preaches a pastor, then you know that person doesn't know what a, a pastor actually is, right? He doesn't know what an elder is. Could it be that there are those in the Lord's church that don't have a clue what spiritual really is? When we're talking about it as something that's achieved with lighting and gimmicks and feelings. It's not about sensuality. It's not about a better felt than told mindset. Being spiritual goes far beyond that. Being spiritual transcends the physical. Spiritual souls stand on evidence. Keep in mind Romans 10, 17 Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Faith is founded on God's Word. Now connect that with Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith stands on evidence. God's Word is evidence. Faith looks at the evidence for God's Word and that which can be tested, that which can be analyzed and assessed, and recognizes that everything that God has said as it pertains to scientific foreknowledge, as it pertains to historical accuracy, as it pertains to fulfilled prophecy, as it pertains to the Bible's consistency. Every inspired word from God's breath through man's pen recorded for us is true and can be trusted. And because faith stands on the evidence of God's word, 
spiritual souls standing on the evidence of God's word peer ahead to that which is unseen. Connect this, if you will, with 2 Corinthians 5. When Paul says that we walk by faith, not by sight. We're not basing everything on just feelings and emotions. And faith is not a walk out onto an untested limb or a blind leaf in the dark. Faith stands on the evidence that God has supplied and knowing that we can trust God in everything testable and tangible that He said, we take His word for it in those things that we cannot test. Faith thinks about what God has said. Faith tests the reliability of it and as a result, faith trusts what cannot be tested. Now, those ideas in mind. When we talk about the spiritual, it transcends the physical. It's not about feelings. It's not about uh, materialistic stimuli. Spiritual stands on the evidence of God's Word and then looks ahead to the unseen. Take Colossians 3. Paul did not use the word spiritual in this statement, but he gave a good description of it. When he said, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ dwelleth at the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. That's a spiritual mindset. It's going to be very important as we move forward. For now, spirituality, being spiritual is a matter of priority. Are we putting heavenly things first? Transcending the physical. Spirituality is a matter of authority. Let's come back to 1 Corinthians. Picking up in chapter 2. Paul will make the statement, and in this same context where he's going to tell them in chapter 3, I couldn't write, speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. Before he gets to that point, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, he says, The uh, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things God's prepared for them that love him. Frequently folks take this passage and they try to apply it to the final heaven. It's not the context. Paul's talking about how man's mind could never ascertain, predict, or guess ahead to the plan that God unveiled through Christ, His sacrifice, and the establishment of His church. I had not seen, nor ear heard, neither did into the heart of man the things God had prepared to them that love Him. But, Paul says, God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. What man knows the things of man but the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so... The Spirit of God. No man knows the things of God but the Spirit of God. None of us can read one another's minds. Now, for those of us that are married and have been married for a period of time, we might know one another's practices and habits. A parent might be able to predict a child's tendencies, but that's not the ability to read a mind. That, that, that's a knowledge of, of habits and tendencies. Not a single one of us can read the other one's mind. I can't tell you right now exactly what you're thinking. Half the time I can't tell you what I'm thinking. None of us can read each other's minds. Nor can we read God's. But He's re revealed His mind to us. Which is the, the point Paul makes as he focuses in 1 Corinthians 2. God's revealed these things to us by a Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. And he says, we've received not the Spirit that's of the world, but the Spirit that is of God. We might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things we speak, 
not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. With what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 2, the focus is on inspiration, God's revelation, so that man can have the instructions that have come directly from God, know what God expects, and know what God extends in terms of the promises that lay ahead. We can easily connect this with 2 Peter chapter 1. Prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Those prophecies of Scripture didn't come from a private interpretation. They weren't the result of man's hankerings. If you don't know what a hankering is, it's an urge, but anywhere south of the Mason-Dixon line. The, uh, the Scriptures weren't the result of men's impulses. They were the result of God's inspiration. The reason this is important, when we talk about spiritual souls, spiritual souls never say, I know what the Bible says, but... Spiritual souls do not treat God's Word as though it's the problem. Spiritual souls see God's Word as the solution every time. Spiritual souls accept God's Word as authoritative. Paul would write later to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, 37, and say, If any man among you thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. And the truth still stands. Now, whereas in 1 Corinthians 14, there's definitely a miraculous context being considered. Anyone today that would still consider himself to be spiritually minded, he's going to have to accept the reality, the validity, the integrity, and the authority of God's inspired Word. And anyone that rejects it, anyone that turns a blind eye, a deaf ear, a cold shoulder, or a back to the Word of God cannot claim spirituality. So when we talk about that which is spiritual, it's a matter of priority. It's also a matter of authority. And because of this, there's another conclusion that has to be reached. Spiritual souls obey the gospel. And no soul that has not obeyed the gospel of Christ can truly be called spiritual. And if we've stepped on any toes, we don't apologize. Because Jesus didn't. There has never been a spiritual soul that was not a child of God. Think about what Jesus told His apostles. Remember, Paul said, The things I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. The apostles were Christ's representatives on earth. They were the ones that what they bound on earth is what had been bound in heaven. What they loosed on earth is what had been loosed in heaven. And when Jesus sent them out on the great commission, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, He said, You go into all the world and you teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Jesus told the apostles, You go out and you teach what I've commanded you. And you teach the ones you teach to observe what I've commanded you. Think for just a moment about three different accounts of the Great Commission and how implicit in those accounts is what it means to obey the gospel. For instance, go ye therefore and teach all nations. You know, there's a difference between teaching and speaking. There's a difference between teaching and talking. 
those that are teachers know this because there are some students that have the uh, attention capacity of a brick wall. There's a difference between teaching and talking. Teaching requires hearing on the part of the listener. Thus, implicit in the Great Commission is the need for those that would be taught to be willing to learn. Teach. That means they need to hear. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Mark 16, 15, go ye, there, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The gospel is to be preached. That, that, that's what needs to be taught. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Believe. It's not just a matter of hearing the gospel. The gospel does not save simply because it falls upon ears and it's a magical Harry Potter spell. The gospel saves because the ear that's willing to hear assesses what's been said and accepts the truth of it. That's belief. That's trust. That's faith. By the way, it doesn't stop there either. Luke 24, beginning of verse 47, Jesus had said, Thus it's written, thus it behooved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance, a remission of sin, should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. He declared that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in His name. Repentance is part of this teaching and preaching. Repentance is a requirement on the part of those that would heed the gospel. So we talk about what it means to obey the gospel. There's the necessity of hearing. There's the necessity of believing. There's the necessity of repentance. Repentance is that change of mind. Meta noeo, meta, change, noeo, mind or thinking. Repentance is literally a change of mind. And when your mind changes, your behaviors change. Repentance. But he said in Luke 24, uh, 47, repentance and remission of sins will be preached in his name. In His name means under His authority. In His name means in submission to Him. Now take that thought and connect it with what was said in Matthew 28 when He said, baptizing them in the name of, under the authority of, in submission to the power and authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Obeying the gospel involves recognizing His authority, acknowledging His authority, Accepting His authority. Admitting His authority. There's a word we use for this. When a person admits the truth of something, we call that a confession. Paul would say, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10.10. We take a look at the accounts of the Great Commission, just Matthew 28, Mark 16, and Luke 24, and implicit and Jesus telling His apostles to go out and preach is the need to hear, believe, repent, confess. Matthew 28, 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The words are written in red. They come from the lips of our Lord, from the mind of God Almighty. The Great Commission, in and of itself, declares what it means to obey the gospel. And a person that doesn't obey the gospel hasn't submitted to the authority of the Lord, hasn't submitted to the truth of the Scriptures. It can't be called a spiritual person. There's hope. That person can be taught, that person can learn, can make the decision. 
But when we talk about what it means to be spiritual, it's a matter of priority. It's also a matter of authority. Have we submitted to it? Let's come back to 1 Corinthians. We noted the end of chapter 2. Let's move into chapter 3. Because Paul will say to them, I couldn't write unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, as unto babes in Christ. And he connects being spiritual with maturity. But let's be careful here. Just like we want to be careful about assuming that anyone that preaches is a pastor, because then we don't, don't know what a pastor is, there are times when we as God's people adopt terms that we've heard others among God's people use and just assume, hey, that's the biblical approach. Let's be careful with this word spiritual. Especially when we talk about maturity. Reason being, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, spiritual and maturity are linked. Yes. I couldn't write unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. Your babes in Christ. But spirituality and maturity are not identical, equivalent ideas. When we, talk about, <clears throat> when we talk about maturity in the New Testament, the, the idea of maturity is connected to understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 14. That same epistle where Paul says you're a bunch of babies, 1 Corinthians 3, he tells them in 14, Be not children in understanding, in malice be children, but in understanding be men. Don't be a child, be an adult. That means grow up. That means mature. And in understanding they were to be men. Now take that thought and compare it with 2 Peter 3.18. When Peter said to grow, grow is a, the maturation process. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul connected growth with understanding. Peter connects growth with understanding and knowledge. Or you think about the words of Colossians 1.28. When Paul, speaking of Jesus, says, Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Paul, why are you teaching in all wisdom? That we might present every man perfect. Teleos is the Greek word. Complete. Mature. To Christ. This idea of growth, of maturation, maturity, is connected to understanding, knowledge, wisdom, ability. The reason this is important is because when we talk about spiritual, maturity is a description of faith, not spirituality. We're in Colossians. Think for just a moment about what Paul told the Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, he told them, Your faith groweth exceedingly. He didn't say you're growing spiritually. He said your faith groweth exceedingly. And what is to grow about the Christian is understanding, knowledge, wisdom, which results in a strengthened faith. Come back to Colossians where Paul said we teach every man and warn every man in all wisdom so we can present them perfect, mature before Christ. In the very next chapter, Colossians 2, 6, he, he, he speaks of uh, those that are to be walking in Christ as they've learned Him. Verse 7, rooted, built up in Him, and established in the faith. 
Rooted, built up, established. Keep those terms in mind. He's just been talking about maturity. Then he speaks of being rooted, built up, and established. And those same terms will be employed by him in the sister letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. Flip over to Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Where speaking of spiritual gifts and miraculous gifts, Paul says these were given till. By the way, when you read the word till in Ephesians 4, he's not talking about something you do with, in the garden. Till, until. Till, a time stamp. Till, there's an expiration date on those miraculous gifts Paul was describing. And those miraculous gifts were given till we all come in the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect, teleos, complete, mature man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In Ephesians 4, he's talking about a mature church. He's talking about the Lord's church universal as a whole, coming to a point of maturity where the miraculous gifts would not be needed. What was needed was for there to be a standard, a source of teaching that would not be limited by access to miraculous gifts, but available to all. Which is why he moves forward to say, Ephesians 4.14, we be henceforth no more children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Be no more children. Put it in simple terms. Grow up. Be no more children tossed to and fro, but instead, speaking the truth in love, may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. In this passage, when Paul speaks of maturity and growing up, the church in and of itself, he connects it with knowledge and the source of knowledge that would allow the church to be mature. By the way, that would be the revealed, written, Recorded Word of God. Because once God's Word was revealed, written, recorded, and made available, there was no more need for the miraculous gifts. We've got a better body of evidence between the covers of this book than the miraculous gifts supplied in that day and age because we've got the full uh, encyclopedia of it. Now, when we talk about Maturity. Maturity pertains to faith. And a mature faith is firm. It's not tossed to and fro, by the way. That ought to tell us something about about those members of the Lord's church. That every time there's a speed bump, every time there's a hiccup, every time there's seemingly the slightest obstacle, we don't know if they're going to stick around or not. Because their faith is so immature. Because the, uh, their faith is so weak. They're cared about by every wind of doctrine. There are some folks that they've studied the gospel plan of salvation. They know the importance of hearing the gospel, believing it, repenting of sins, confessing Jesus, and being baptized. But every other month they hear something from a denominational friend that makes them second guess everything they've ever learned. Why? Because they're cared about by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. Because they don't lie on the authority of God's Word. They're not mature enough to hold to it. Mature faith is firm. Mature faith is shared. Let's go to another passage that speaks of 
this idea of growth and maturation. Here, Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 12, he says, When for the time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again will be the first principles of the oracles of God. You become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. They need it taught again. Yes, he's speaking to those Hebrews Christians, uh, Hebrew Christians that were uh, turning back toward the old law. But there's a principle conveyed here that, that we need to take to heart. They should have been teachers, but they were too busy letting other folks teach them. Brethren, we as God's people are very good about arranging Bible classes and peripheral classes and Tuesday classes and other day classes in order, for, in order for God's people to come together and feed on the Word of God. And that's terrific. But we need to stop and think about whether or not we are filling our time so much with, with other people teaching us that we're failing to teach other people. When for the time you ought to be teachers? Could it be the case that there are some folks that are avoiding being teachers by making sure they have a class where they can be taught? When for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need someone teach you again the first principle of the oracles of God. You become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. They needed milk, not strong meat. And here commences another idea that so often gets misapplied among so many well-intended Christians. You've heard them say, oh, well, this is a milk passage. Or that's a meat passage. Mm -mm. Let's keep on in Hebrews 5. Notice verse 13. He says, he that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. He is a babe. The reason he is a babe is not because the, of the difficulty of the passage. The reason he is a babe is because he is unskillful in the word of righteousness. Contrast, verse 14, strong meat belongs unto them that are full age. They're mature, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. They spend enough time in God's word, their teeth are cut in God's word, and they're able to get the, milk, uh, the meat and the protein out of it of every passage. There are some people for whom John 3.16 is a milk passage because that's all they're going to get from it. They've not spent enough time in God's Word to see some other things that are there that, that don't stand as obvious. Then for some, John 11.35, they can get so much meat out of it, they can preach just from Jesus' wept for hours on end. It's not about the difficulty of the passage. It's about the experience of the teeth. Mature faith is firm. It doesn't budge. Mature faith is shared, and it's willing to be shared. Mature faith is prepared. Peter would give the exhortation, 1 Peter 3, 15, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks, a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Mature faith doesn't run from those that want to second-guess it. Mature faith is ready to give an answer. And that doesn't mean the answer is always accepted by the skeptic uh, that won't listen. It just means that there's not a question that's going to be asked that's going to cause this Christian to second guess his relationship with Christ. Mature faith is prepared to answer. I think we may have lost a battery. So, now let's move forward. When we talk about this idea of maturity, keep in mind that... 
Scripturally speaking, maturity describes a Christian's knowledge and ability. When we talk about spirituality, there's more to it than just maturity. Spirituality pertains to priorities. Am I focused on things above? Spirituality pertains to maturity. Yes, it's connected, but it's also authority. Am I listening to what the Lord has to say? One more area of consideration. Galatians, beginning in chapter 5. Remember, Paul had told those Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, I can't write unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. You're babes in Christ. Uh, the reason that was the case was because they had envy and strife among them. He said, you're carnal, you walk as men. Keep that thought in mind. Galatians 5, Paul will make the statement to the brethren in Galatia. You've been called to liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Side note. Paul begins this passage of Scripture in Galatians 5 discussing selfishness versus selflessness. Don't use your liberty for an occasion to your own flesh and serve yourself, but by love serve one another. All the laws fulfilled in one word, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed of one another. Being spiritual is not only a matter of authority, priority, and maturity, it's going to be a matter of personality. How do I treat my brethren? Do I act charitable? All the laws fulfilled in one word, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, or am I a Christian cannibal? That's what Paul said, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed of one another. We never see that today, do we? We never hear of those that are in the Lord's church. Sometimes those that are leaders in the Lord's church, that are quick to bite the heads off of anyone who disagrees with them. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed of one another. Instead of edifying one another, they were eating each other alive. That's the context of, first, of Galatians chapter 5. By the way, that context is going to continue all the way through verse 26. When Paul says, be not envious of one another, provoking one another. Selfishness versus selflessness. How do I treat my brethren? Am I charitable or am I prone to overreact? Am I prone to snap? Am I prone to chew them up one side and down the other? Next question. What kind of fruit do I bear? Because after Paul says, if we walk in the Spirit, we'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh, he begins talking about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. This is a strong aspect of what it means to be spiritual. And those that manifest the works of the flesh are not spiritual. Ephesians 5.19 the works of the flesh are manifest. They're obvious. Here they are. Adultery. That's selfish behavior. Not selfless. Fornication. Selfishness. Uncleanness. Lasciviousness. Lasciviousness. By the way, lasciviousness can be described as a, a, a public misbehavior 
Thayer's connects it with indecent words, indecent bodily movements, and unchaste handling of males and females. But the, the word translated lasciviousness can be connected simply to an I don't care mindset. Typically in terms of sensuality and sexuality, yes, but it can go beyond that. It, it's the person that says, I'm not worried about what others see. I'm not worried about how people react. I'm not worried about who I offend. That's carnal, not spiritual. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry. Loving anything more than God. Witchcraft. <laughs> that word translated witchcraft. The Greek word is pharmakeia. We get our word pharmacy, pharmaceutical from it. And, and it connects with using uh, inebriants and using hallucinogenics in order to cause people to think they were seeing miraculous actions on the part of the one that was slipping a pill or, or slipping a liquid. They were convincing them to follow after idolatry or witchcraft by using inebriants. Idolatry, witchcraft. Listen to the next ones. Hatred. Variance. Wrath. Emulations. That's jealousies. Strife. Seditions. Heresies. All of those pertain to conflict. Selfish, arrogant conflict. The word translated heresies can connect to the idea of being a seditionist and causing division, but not only the causing of division, it's a mindset of I'm going to get in my way no matter what. That's not spiritual. It's carnal. And when everything has to be about me, when every sentence begins with I and ends with me, and when seldom is the concept of you or they ever passing through the mind, carnality has an I problem. It's far too focused on self. It's selfish. The idolatry, witchcraft, Hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. <laughs> and such like, he says, if we've omitted anything else that is clearly and obviously selfish behavior. Paul says, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Flip side. What kind of fruit do I bear? Do I bear the works of the flesh? By the way, works is plural. Any one of those qualifies as work of the flesh. Do I manifest the works of the flesh or the fruit? The word translated fruit is karpos. It is singular. So often we hear folks talk about the fruits of the Spirit. Mm -mm, it's one. The fruit of the Spirit has nine slices. And if anyone's missing, it's not the entire fruit of the Spirit. If any one aspect is missing, it's incomplete. The fruit, singular fruit of the Spirit is love. Agape. Agape is the love that is selfless. Agape is the love that is more of a decision than an emotion. And any decision that's made is made because we decide that it's worth it. Agape is the love that says, I love you because you're worth it. Love. Joy. It's the, the idea of an inward decision, 
not just a reaction to external influences and circumstances, but a decision. Love, joy, peace. Follow after the things which make for peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. If it be possible, as much as life, then you live peaceably with all men. Peace. By the way, peace is the absence of wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness. Peace. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Macrothemia, it's a slow to wrath. It doesn't mean people won't get on your nerves. It means that we don't come to wrath every time someone steps on a nerve. Because there are some folks that live their lives as exposed nerves. And the slightest offense results in an explosion. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. Crestates is the idea of a goodness. Then goodness really connects more to the idea of a gentleness. Faith is faithfulness, reliability. You can count on that person. Meekness, prioritize. There's a humility there. And temperance. Temperance, there's self-control. Self-control won't explode with the drop of a hat. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. The context is selfishness versus selflessness, which leads us to another conclusion. Carnal is selfish. Spiritual is selfless. And the person whose behavior reflects any aspect of Galatians 5, 19 through 21 is not spiritual, but the one whose life reflects every aspect. Of verses 22 and 23, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That person is spiritual. By the way, take Galatians 5, 22 and 23 and compare it to how God described His own personality in Exodus 34. When He declared His glory to Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, Exodus 34 beginning in verse 6, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, Abundant in goodness, mercy, kased is the Hebrew word, and truth, fidelity, faithfulness. Keeping mercy, kased for thousands, protecting a relationship, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, will by no means clear the guilty. You compare God's personality to the fruit of the Spirit, and they run side by side. How do we treat our brethren? Do we treat them the way God does? With the same kind of patience and forbearing? With the same kind of love and cherishing, guarding of the relationship? Or are we willing to treat our brethren like the slightest trespass or transgression, like the slightest offense or bothering of me ends the relationship and I'm done with you? That's not spiritual. How do I treat my brethren? What kind of fruit do I bear? Then one more question, to whom do I belong? Because Ephesians 5, picking up in verse 24, after Paul details the fruit of the Spirit, he says, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh. They put it to death with the affections and the lusts thereof. If we are after the Spirit, 
If we're in the Spirit, let's walk after the Spirit. We've crucified the flesh, carnal. We walk after the Spirit, spiritual. So let's not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. One more passage tonight. You're in Ephesians 5. We just finished looking at selfish versus selfless, carnal versus spiritual. Let's read the very next verse. Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual. The hotheads are not the ones that Paul summons. The compromisers are not the ones that he implores. Those whom Paul calls to come and restore the one that is erring, if a man be overtaken in a fall, ye which are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, <laughs> considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The spiritual are the ones that manifest the fruit of the Spirit. When we talk about spirituality, it's not a feeling. It's not based on sensual stimuli. When we talk about spirituality, it's a matter of priority. Where's my focus? It's a matter of authority. Who's my master? It's a matter of maturity. How's my faith? And it's a matter of personality. Am I exhibiting the kind of behavior that God expects of those that would claim to bear the fruit of the Spirit? Tonight, we've already made the point, but it bears repeating. No soul can claim to be spiritual that's not a Christian that has not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ and been washed in the blood of the Lamb, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never done that and you're ready. You're ready to become a Christian, a child of God, to be added to the Lord's church. We can do it tonight. We've got warm water here. We don't have to go out in the cold. Maybe you're here tonight. You've obeyed the gospel before. But as you look at your life, it's been far more carnal than spiritual. You've not manifested the fruit of the Spirit. Your personality has been far from that God would desire. Your, your maturity is far from that that it ought to be. Your authority has been self instead of God. And your priority has been the same. Are you ready to make things right? Are you ready to come home and repent? Who's spiritual? Tonight as we leave here, my prayer is that the answer is you are. But if that's not the answer right now, why not make it so? Why not come forward while we stand together and while we sing?